All right, how many of you have <clears throat> admitted that you were wrong this week? Anybody admitted that you were wrong? Really? That's a lot more than I thought. Okay, I need to hear. I need to hear a couple of you talk about how you were wrong. Okay, what were you wrong about? Somebody. Chloe was wrong. Did you ask? Yes. But, 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 I really did a great job of, of covering, it covering it up. Okay. Yeah. Does she know that you thought that she no, was... No, the... she didn't. She, well, she, yes, but... <laughs> See, no and yes are I two said, different I things. I said, is it, a, is it a boy or a girl? And she said, I'm not pregnant. And then I said, no, I meant like in your stroller. And she said, oh. And then she turned around and she goes, this is my son. And I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> but I was definitely wrong. Wow, okay. That's awesome. Okay. I think the rule is to never ask that. I think that's the rule. Anybody else admit they're wrong this week about something? It's kind of hard to follow that one. Well, I admitted I was wrong this week. Wrong about something that I've believed was true for most of my Christian life, okay? Um, in fact, for about five years, I've been wrestling with whether or not I, what I believe about this. Because up until then, I had always assumed one thing. Always been taught one thing. Always kind of just believed one thing. And loved, actually really, really enjoyed believing this thing. And about five years ago, I was introduced to the possibility of it being something else. And, uh, and so I was reminded this, this past week of why it's so important that we don't, we don't um, come to the Bible with our experience as lenses to read the Bible. Okay, so a couple weeks ago, I talked about this hermeneutical process, which is a fancy way of saying like principles of interpreting the Bible, where we talked about uh, how this, whenever you interpret the Bible, you start with, um, then, which would be the Bible times, okay? And we're looking for the author's intended meaning. Why it's, why it's so important to start here. And then from there, we go up to um, all times, okay? There's then, and then oh, we have all time. And then we come down to now, Okay? So, so we have this process of, of figuring out, okay, first we start with the first, the first century in this, in this case, or we start with whenever the context was, the author or the audience. And then we go up to, okay, what's, what's kind of this overall principle that's being taught, and how does it apply at all times? Okay, what, what principle applies at all times, not just then? And then we can, once we kind of go through this process, then we can kind of come down to today and go, okay, so now how do I live that? How do I apply this to my life? Well, the reason you don't start here and go here to the Bible, okay? the reason we don't start with my experience and go to the Bible is because we can read things into the, into the text that maybe aren't there. Okay? Now, I say that, um, the, what I'm about to, the, what I was wrong about, there are still scholars that, um, that know the context, okay? that are studying the Bible, that, know the context, that, that believe the way I used to believe. Um, but it's in Romans 7. I would go to Romans 7 
How many of you go to Romans 7? I go to, go to Romans 7 when I was struggling with sin. And I would find solidarity in Paul. Because after all, Paul is an amazing man. He's sold out, missionary. He's, he's written half the Bible. He wrote the Bible. I mean, so, and if he struggles with sin, hey, I'm in good company. Like, I feel better. Like, it's, it's maybe, you know, if he does it, maybe I, maybe I can, maybe it's okay. Maybe at least, it's not okay to sin. Obviously, I would have never said that, but I would say, man, I feel better, okay? Because I got something in common with Paul, and he was amazing. Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily go to Romans 7 and then go, okay, I need to, I need to like, see this in light of the chapters around it. And, and what I've discovered is something, something different. So, um, that's not actually really the point of what we're going to talk about. We're going to be in Romans 8, but I feel like we've got to spend a little bit of time in Romans 7, um, especially with this somewhat a five-year process of me changing my mind um, that I finally admitted this week that I've, I've been wrong about, that I believe I was wrong about. Um, I believe 6 through 8, so here's the bigger picture. Romans 6 through 8 is describing, is describing uh, just how God's grace um, is amazing, first of all, but how we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Okay, that's, that's Romans 6. That faith in Jesus frees us from the law of sin that leads to death, and that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we're, that, that we're free in Christ to live out um, righteousness by the Spirit. One of the big things that's talked about in Romans is, is no one is righteous. Like, not even if you follow the law, you can't be righteous. And, in fact, Romans 7 kind of goes off on this a little bit. It talks about the law and says that, that um, when, you, when you live under the law, you're a slave to sin. And so he begs the question in, in verse 7. So, basically, is the law bad? So is, law, is the law the problem? And he says, meganoita, which do you, if you were here last week, Morgan talked about that word, meganoita, which in like um, the cotton patch version of the Bible means hell no, okay? means by no means, by no means is the law the problem. By no means is the law bad. In fact, it's good. It's holy. But what the law does, this is what Romans 7 teaches us, what the law does is that it, it exposes sin in us brings it to light so that it becomes like crazy big. So he uses an example of covetedness um, that I would not know what, that I was a coveter until the law said do not covet and then all of a sudden it says sin comes to life, springs to life and, and I'm a coveter. And it becomes, I become sinful beyond measure it even says. So he's describing that when that the law just exposes something in us is there, and that actually it's God's grace to help us see that we're sinful. So he then he goes on in in verses thirteen through twenty five, which is the verses I would go to over and over and over for comfort to go. Man, I know what you mean, Paul. Like I, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. I'm with you. But what I, but I, what I actually believe Paul's saying is, is that he's not describing the Christian life struggling in sin. I believe he's describing his pre-converted life under the law as a slave to sin. 
And so I want to point out just a couple things, okay? Um, and, and, and then explain why the comfort that I would go to Romans 7 for is, is a less comforting thing than the bigger comfort that is seen in, in chapters 6 through 8, okay? So I would go to Romans 7 seeking comfort and to, to know that, hey, Paul struggles with sin and I do too and he and I are, we're, we're in the same. And I would seek comfort there. But the comfort that, that Paul is giving in the bigger picture is way better, far, far better than, than what I was looking for. So, but real quick, verse in 7.14, it says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Okay, I, he's, Paul says, I am of the flesh sold under sin. He's talking in present terms. He says, I am and I do this. Okay, But I still, I believe he's referring to himself pre-Christian. Because, look at verse uh, chapter 6, verse 18. He's describing having been set free from sin and becoming a slave to, to righteousness. Okay? So the direct contrast. So one of those, if they're both, if just both are describing the Christian life, then one, one is wrong. Uh, look at 7.23. He describes this, this statement. Making me captive to the law of sin. And look at verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 2. Just a couple verses later. After he says, now therefore, he says in, in 8.2, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So, 7.13, I believe, 7.13 now, is describing life in the flesh in direct contrast to seven or in, to chapter 8, which describes life in the spirit. Okay, so here's here's may, um, let me answer maybe what you are asking. So, is, so does that mean Christians don't struggle with sin? Because if that's true, I'm in deep doo doo. Um, like there's a problem here. So here's what I think. I don't think Paul would say, yeah, Christians should never struggle with sin. Clearly, Christians struggle with sin. If you if you've read 1 Corinthians, if you've read Galatians, if you've read the New Testament and Paul's letters and, and actually some of the other letters, I have a whole list of scriptures here that, that describe Christians sinning and needing to be corrected or rebuked or confronted or challenged or admonished, encouraged, whatever. I mean, like there's this thing that needs to happen, okay? The, the whole New Testament is written to believers. So clearly there are believers that are struggling with sin. So the, 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 the comfort in Romans 7 isn't you know, so like Paul struggles with sin, and I do too, and and so therefore we're the same. But the comfort found in five through eight, okay, the bigger picture here, is that this grace in Jesus, in Jesus stands in stark contrast to our unrighteous, dead selves. Is more than amazing because it brought us from death to life and set us free to live um, righteous lives by the Spirit. In other words, I've heard that it said. We've been given a bazillion dollar salvation, but we often live with the 10 cent faith. Okay? What we have in Christ and in the Spirit we're going to talk about is amazing. I think, okay, so I said several weeks ago, I think Romans 3, 21 through 26 is the greatest paragraph in the Bible. I think Romans 5 through 8 are the greatest chapters in the Bible. If, 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 if you had to nail me down to one chapter, I'd say it's chapter 8. Um, 
So what we're going to talk about today is like amazing life in Christ stuff. So this is what these, these chapters have been reminding me over these last several weeks as I've been pouring over them. It reminds me that I don't, now, I can't understate this. This is not, I, um, when I say I desperately need to be reminded of this, it is not an understatement, or an overstatement, sorry. That's not an overstatement. I desperately need to be reminded of the finished work of the cross. Like, that my faith in Jesus, the salvation I have in Him, is definitive. Um, I need to be reminded of the amazing grace of God that He lavished on me and on us. And I need to be reminded of the power of God's Spirit living in me that, that sets me free to do the things that, that God would want me to do. Because I desperately need to be reminded of those things. So when I come, when I, if I'm struggling in sin and I come to Romans 5 through 8 now, what I'm going to be reminded of is not, oh yeah, me and Paul both struggle with sin. No. What I need to be reminded of is the power of um, Christ's definitive work on the cross, that it, that it saved me from my sin, that I'm dead to sin and alive in Christ, that God's amazing grace is like rocket fuel that I need to live out my, my life in Christ, and that I have God's Spirit in, in me, which we're going to talk about. And if He lives in you, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living in you. He can bring life to your mortal body. And so, like, I need to be reminded of that. And that's, that's what I'm excited about talking about today to you. So, I was wrong. Hopefully, I'm right. Um, but there's some still some scholars that disagree. Um, but I want to pray, and then we're going to jump into chapter 8. Let's pray. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for conquering death and being raised back to life, proving the power of what you did on the cross, of your death on the cross um, in, in our place for our sin. Thank you for the gift of your grace and your spirit um, that teaches me to, to not only know and love you better, to know you as Abba Father, and to be your son, and, and to, to, um, to be adopted by you, God, but, but also teaches me how to live right for you, how to live for you, how to, how to follow you, how to, how to love you, how to do the things that you want me to do. And so God, remind us today of what we have in you, and what we could have in you. If there's anyone here that hasn't placed their faith and trust in you. And so I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, need a reader. Romans 8. Um, we're going to start with just verse 1, because it's pretty darn big. Romans 8, 1. Who wants to read that? Somebody. Um, you. In the front row. Next to Anthony. Just verse one. Alright. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay. That's big. That is huge. This idea of condemnation has been mentioned already. Um 
in previous in, in chapter five, and um, th- this idea is actually not a new idea. It's not a new that um, that there's no condemnation. In fact, let me read it. Five eighteen says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. He's talking about in previous verses. He's talking about Adam and how Adam's sin leads to all men sinning. He says, if 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 one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, who's he referring to there? Jesus. Jesus' act of righteousness leads to justification um, and life for all men. And so he's describing how, like there's this, this, we are now justified because of Jesus' act of righteousness, faith in him. So this is not a new concept, but the way he states it is so clear. Therefore now, so in contrast to, I believe now, previous life in Christ, now, as a follower of Jesus, as as one who's placed your faith and trust in Jesus, there's no condemnation. In other words, your sin doesn't condemn you. Like, you, you have life in Christ. You are dead to sin and alive in Him. When God sees you, He sees Christ in you. He sees that. He doesn't see, he doesn't see your sin. There's no condemnation. And, and condemnation is kind of an interesting thing. And so I, I want to talk practically. We normally don't talk real practical in this first part. And hopefully Drew doesn't, have, doesn't touch on this and I'm not taking his, any of his thunder. Um, but, you know, this, this idea of condemnation is kind of an interesting, interesting thing. I, I, I think some of you, as I have felt, as I'm struggling with sin, if I'm struggling with something or, or frustrated at myself or whatever, I can sometimes feel this like, yeah, you're never going to get it. I don't even, who do you think you are? I can't believe you call yourself a Christian. I can't believe you would do that. Like, nobody does that. Just you. You're the only one that struggles with that. You're the only one that can't figure this out, right? That's, those are voices of, of condemnation. Things like, so what condemnation does is it's enslaving. It doesn't care what's best for me. It wants to hold me back. Um, wants me to withdraw from God. If you've ever felt tempted after sin or in the midst of sin or struggling with sin, um, running from God because you don't deserve His grace or you don't deserve to talk to Him or you just, I don't want to deal with it. If you withdraw from God, that's you're listening to a voice of condemnation. It's self-centered in nature. and In other words, it's looking to self and not God. The enemy is saying you're useless and a worthless, worthless sinner and you can't live this Christian life. Like, I've heard those voices. I don't know if you guys have. That's, but that's condemnation. But that's not who we are. That's not what it says we have in, in Christ. It says we have no condemnation. It's different. Verse 2. Reader. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Okay. So, he's... I've talked about how whenever you're observing a text, you look for uh, comparison or contrast ideas. He's he's making very clear contrasts in the following verses about, um, well, he, here in this verse, he's about the law of the spirit of life versus the law of sin and death. So the law of sin and death is what he just got done describing <clears throat> at the end of at the end of seven, and now he's describing. Um, the freedom we have from that law of sin and death by the Spirit who set us free. Um, in other words, you are free from the endless cycle of seeking to be righteous on your own, by your own strength. 
Um, and, and only to wonder if God is pleased with you. Like you're free from that endless cycle of trying to please God. The Bible describes like you now have been, you, you've gone from dead to alive and now you're being made new. You're being made to be able to, to live a righteous life in Christ. It's an amazing thing. Read um, 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay. So, verse 3 and 4. So notice it says, the righteous requirements of the law. The right, sorry, the righteous requirement. It's singular in, in the original Greek. It's singular. And it's describing this, referring to the whole law. That ultimately, um, God, in Christ, has fulfilled the entirety of the law's demand on your behalf. So all the law, so the, the 613 laws, um, or... Oftentimes, Paul will either talk about the law in terms of the Old Testament law, and sometimes he'll talk about the law in terms of this, this principle of life. And so when he talks about the law of the Spirit, or, or the, law of the law of sin and death, he's talking about this, this, this principle of life. But both, either way, God in Christ has fulfilled the entirety of the law's demands on our behalf. Um, that this, this... This way of trying to earn our way to God is, is no more. It's dead. And now we're being changed and transformed and set free from the inside out, from, by God's Spirit, to, to be able to live this righteous life. I, uh, uh, John Piper gave a definition of freedom that is my favorite definition because it reminds me of what God has done in my life. His, here's his definition of freedom. It's loving to do the things that God would want you to do. It says, it says when, you, when you're free, you're truly free, you love to do things that God would want you to do. So I don't know about you, I remember when I didn't love to go to church. Now I do. I remember when I didn't love to read my Bible. And now I do. I remember when I didn't love to um, like spend time with God. Now I do. I remember when I didn't love to get up in front of people and talk about Jesus. And now I do. So, like, there's these things that I never loved to do that all of a sudden, now I find myself loving to do. I, I love to do things that God would want me to do. Now, I'm, I'm still in this process of becoming more like Him, and, and God is transforming me. And transformation, as Paul, as kind of in line with this idea of freedom, is, is, um, is that process that we go through where we begin to love the things that God wants us to do. We begin to be free. So, what happens um, if I'm a Christian and I feel that something, uh, feel something, feel some sort of, I don't know, shame, guilt when I sin, um, and when I turn, um, when I turn to, to shame and guilt instead of turning to God. So, there's this process that happens, and I think the difference is for, for a believer, when they understand who they are in Christ, when they, when they understand what, what we have in Jesus, there is a thing called conviction, which is God's grace. 
like that God's Spirit would convict us. So you think about if condemnation is enslaving, doesn't care what's best for me, it wants me to withdraw from God, is self-centered in nature, and it tells me things that aren't true. Okay, then conviction is freeing. It helps remember, helps me remember who I am in Christ. It, it's it's um, helping me see how I've started to walk away from Christ, and it's, it calls me to surrender to God. Um, has God's glory in mind and my best interest? Um, it's the Holy Spirit saying, "You've sinned, but turn back." So, like I, I picture, I picture condemnation as, as this, and I and I picture conviction as a hand extended. Come on, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. So sometimes we react to this guilt and shame of sin, and and you need to know that like that's a really good thing. Like if you get to a point in your life where you're able to do things that God would not be pleased with and you feel you have no conscience about it, there's a pretty good chance you've stopped listening to the Spirit a long time ago. Galatians 5 talks about how the, the, basically life in sin and a life in the Spirit, and it describes how those things are in contrast to each other. Like So if you feel, a, if you feel conviction, if you feel a heaviness, if you feel weight, after sin, that's that's the presence of God's Spirit reminding you to turn back, to to confess, to to remember who you are in Christ. So, the end of four introduces this this contrast in the rest of five through eight, and use this word flesh. It's the word sarks in the Greek. It refers to <clears throat> sinful tendencies of humans. Okay, so uh, read five through eight. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, and it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay. So he's describing the contrast of, of living by the flesh or living by the Spirit. And so he says... It, it starts in their mind, or, or in other words, a mindset of, like a mindset that is, is this idea of this basic direction of a person's will. Right? So like your mindset is on the flesh, to live by the flesh. To, in other words, it's, it's worldly things. It would be, it would be not, if it's not of God, then it's, it's of the world. And so it would be, you know, me living to please me. And living to living for the things that this world says are great and good, and that we should chase after. Mindset on the flesh um, it is is a mindset oriented to to, like I said, the world. And it, what does it lead to? What does it say it leads to? Death. Death. Like that's where it leads. Um, but the mindset uh, oriented to the spirit. Leads to life and peace. So, you have this, you have this, these two things, and I and I really believe that as a follower of Jesus, you know, we are called to be. Paul is reminding us that we are to set our minds on the Spirit, on the things of God. We are to fill our minds with the things of God. We're to fill our hearts and minds with things that He would want us to do. 
Because if not, then you're living in direct opposition to God. You're, you're just planting seeds of death. Or, you can live by the Spirit and plant seeds of life and peace. Not that, not that he's saying, you live by the Spirit, you never have any problems. Paul, of all people, knows that that's not the case. Okay? He, imprisoned, beaten, shipwrecked, all this stuff, right? Eventually killed for his faith. And so, that's not the issue. But, in the midst of all that, Paul has life and peace. Which is, I think, something we all want. Read 9 through 13. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the, need, the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, so you, however, in contrast to life in the flesh, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, you're in the spirit. And so that he's saying, that, like, listen, if Christ's spirit is in you, then, then you're alive in the Spirit and not living to the flesh. And this great verse that has become a, a, an incredible comfort and encouragement to me, verse 11, that the same Spirit who raised Him from the dead is living in you. Like We have the same Spirit living in us that raised Christ from the dead. And so he's, th- this is a promise of our resurrection right here. He's already promised it in, in chapter 6, verse 5. That if if uh, if we are baptized in his death, we will be raised to life with him as well. But he, now he's he's saying it in, in another way that like the same spirit that lit, like this spirit is God's presence, God's spirit living in you, the Creator of the universe dwelling in you. You can bring life to your mortal bodies and and bring you to um, resurrection life. But also can bring life to any in every situation, right? That's the comfort that I need in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my sin. I need to know who I have living in me. That's what I need, and who I need to turn to and surrender to. Um, read fourteen through seventeen. Actually, these verses, Paul will go on to describe um, our adoption as sons and daughters and what that does for us. So go ahead, fourteen through seventeen. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. Okay. Notice what... But having God's Spirit in us, it affirms us as sons and daughters, not to live in fear, um, but to recognize our adoption, that God has adopted us, that He calls us His own, and because of that, we can call Him Abba Father, which is which was this intimate, this intimate word for Father, for like Daddy. Like we have this intimate relationship with God because of what Christ has done, 
because of God's Spirit living in us. It has radically changed the, our relationship with Him. And, and this culture will tell you that um, we, just, we just finished filming, or re- recording actually, this, this podcast today. The second podcast <clears throat> in our, for our church, the second one on pornography. Okay, we've done two. We did one last week. We've done a second one this, today, in which Sharon, uh, the counselor on staff, said this: that we are primarily spiritual beings having a human experience. In other words, the the world will tell you that because you're human, you have rights to to satisfy needs and urges and desires, and and that you should go after those things. After all, you're human, and and this world will tell you that. Um, I'm sorry, I'm getting into your application Jew. Sorry. I can't help it. But the, the world will tell you that, that the ultimate human experience is sex and romance. That's the ultimate that like that's what we're here for. That's why we will change and, tr- and, and radically change all kinds of definitions of things because the ultimate human experience is for everyone to have a romantic relationship, to have sex. And so we are sex saturated and it's crazy. But what, what the reality is we are spiritual beings. We are first and foremost created in God's image for His glory. And so we begin to ask this question like, okay, yeah, I'm human and I have these things, but God, what do you want me to do with them? So this world will tell you, you know, um, that you are to live it up as human. And what God was tell you is like you were created to have an intimate relationship with me. Like that's the ultimate human experience is to have a relationship with your with your Creator, and and it's because of God's Spirit living in us that we get to call Him Abba Father. So, pretty amazing stuff. Drew's going to get up and talk about some more amazing stuff. Stick around. Take a couple minutes to break. Ready to go. to try and put together a mentoring thing connecting our college girls with high school girls. Yeah. And so I thought she could do okay. Yeah, we talked about that. Um, the only thing is, uh, what, what do we need to know about them in order to entrust them with our high schoolers? So, um, so who's we talked about that? Who's, well, like I remember a long time ago with Jenny Smith saying, She's like, I want to get started. I said, great. Come up with like an application. So then to fill it out, you know, because we're going to be entrusting some of our kids when you get out who they are. But you can at least see. I think you get these interested. That's what I think is. We'll say. And we can figure out what to do with that. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
No. Not in words. Chat with her. Chat with me. Sweet. So yes. basically, what we're gonna do is ask for anybody interested. Um, because one of the things we need to be careful is promising. If we don't know who they are, giving them. You know, oh yeah. So we'll have to get a number to see if we can start. Okay. So. One of the things that we'll have to do with the people that are interested is find out more about them, find out their story, have some sort of an interview process, just so you know. But interest is good. All right. Can I get your attention real quick before before we jump into the second half? Meredith has a quick uh, announcement she wants to share with you guys. So listen up. Okay. Well, I've been talk. I work with the youth group at Sunnybrook, and so I've been talking with some of the senior girls, and they're interested in doing like a big sister, little sister type program. And so we have like. No plan yet, but um, if you'd be interested in like maybe being um, like adopting like a junior high or ninth or tenth grade girl, just come talk to me so I can get like a number to see if we could start something like this. So it's like a very first baby step. But if you're interested, just come find me after. I'll be like back there somewhere. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. All right, um, so just like Scott kind of started with something that's not necessarily his main point, I want to do that too because I promised you, I don't know if I promised you or not, I told you at the, in the very first week I put these six things up here, these six perfections, and I told you that I think four of them are biblical, um, and I thought I would, I would not hear the end of it if I never said actually which ones of those of that were biblical. So, um, quick reminder, quick refresher. Um, so the idea is these are the, these are the nuances, the perfections that people throughout time have said, this is what makes grace, grace. Like if it's not, if it's not this, then that's not grace or a combination of these things. They said, this is what the Bible means when it says grace. And they, they've used these different nuances, superabundance, meaning it is large, it is big, it is huge. And, and in order for grace to really be grace, it has to be that, it has to be big, um, singularity, uh, basically means that God can only bring like one thing. That in order for God to actually be a gracious God, it means that He only brings good things into our lives, um, because He is an all good God, and therefore um, all good will come from Him. That that there's not going to bring He's not going to bring hardship, suffering, those kinds of things into our life. Uh, priority 
is that grace, in order for it to really be grace, must come first, just like any good gift. If it comes after you give me something, then I'm really just paying you. Um, a gift comes before you've offered me anything. So priority. Um, incongruency, that's, we believe, Paul's big one, uh, which is that the grace, what makes grace, grace, is that it is so much bigger and greater and more valuable than the people who receive it. That is far beyond what we ever deserve from Him. We are completely incongruent with the the beauty and the benefit of grace. Uh, Efficacy is the idea that uh, a gift or grace must be effective. So in order for it to really be grace, it um, it is effective. It does what it sets out to do. That is, namely, save us and make us right with God. And then the last is non-circularity, which is the idea um, that in order for grace to really be grace, God shouldn't expect, God's not going to expect any sort of payment back from us, any sort of, any sort of reciproca- reciprocation from us. Um, and so just like if I were to give you a gift, but the reason I gave you a gift was so that you might give me something later, we would say that's not a gift. That's the idea of non-circularity. So here's briefly which ones I think belong and which ones I don't. Superabundance, I think, is biblical. We talked about this. This is the second half of Romans 5, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. It is greater and bigger than all the sin in the world and able to cover all of those things. So that is a biblical idea. Singularity um, is one that, again, some of these, kind of like grace, it depends on who's defining it a little bit, specifically what you mean. But I would say, based on the way I've seen it defined and understood, that this is not biblical. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that God is gracious and all good, and that He only does what is good. But I do not believe that that means um, that He does not allow hard things, that He does not also bring judgment, that His judgment is good, mm-hmm. and that His wrath can be good, and that His discipline can be good. And so, um, good, if, if you want to say in that He only does what is good and right, um, <laughs> then I, I say, yeah, that's awesome. But if you say, as we perceive it to be, which is kind of how Philo the Jew said, then I say, no, I don't, I don't think that's how it works. That God allows us sometimes to go through very difficult things, sometimes may even cause, and, and I know that gets really tough, I don't believe God causes sin, so I don't believe he caused somebody to sin against you, um, but sometimes cause maybe some difficult things for his glory and for our good. Um, priority, that it comes first. I do believe that's biblical. This is Romans 5 again, um, that God did not give grace to us when, uh, did not send his son to die for us when we, when we came to him and said, hey, could you do something about this, God? Or when we tried to do something nice for him first, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, he came and offered it first. Incongruency, as we've said, is like the key one, so we definitely believe that's biblical. Um, efficacy is, is yes with a limit, all right, um, in my opinion. And then there are other people who, who kind of, this is the big debate. Um, as I said, most people, when, or a lot of people, when they think of efficacy, that grace is effective, what they are referring to is irresistible grace. So, yes, what makes grace really grace is that it is irresistible, and so if God chooses you to be saved, he's going to give you his grace, and you, it will be a like physical, spiritual impossibility for you to say no to it. He has chosen that you're going to say yes to it. And so when grace comes into your life, you are going to accept it. And so it is effective in accomplishing what, it, what it's supposed to do. I, I don't believe it to be 
like that. I don't, I don't believe in efficacy to that degree. Um, I, believe, I do believe in efficacy and that grace is able to accomplish and do what God sets it out to do. That is, it is able to save us. It is able to cover our sins. It is able to make us into a new creation, to make us into the kind of people who can obey and follow Him and, and love Him rightly. But, but just like any good gift that could be really effective, you know, I, I used a couple weeks ago the illustration of um, if, you, if you said to me, man, I really need something that helps me you know, know what time it is, keep track of time, and I go out and get you a toaster, that's a bad gift, right? Um, so that's not effective. It's not efficacy there. It's not accomplishing what it intends to do. But if I go out and give you a watch, that accomplishes what it intends to do. However, I still believe you can reject the watch. And I believe that that's also true with grace. Um, a lot of people that are my heroes that I love theologically disagree with me on that one. But I believe that you can, that you can uh, reject that. And therefore, you know, I believe it's effective in accomplishing saving us. We have the choice whether we're going to accept that or not. And the last one, as we mentioned last week, non-circularity. That God would not expect any sort of payment back to us. And I, and I think that that's unbiblical. Um, Paul says, no, we, we, are, um, we, we do not go on sinning that grace may increase. He said in our passage here, we therefore now are debtors, but not to the flesh. Um, we are, another, other translations say, we now have an obligation, but not to the flesh. We are obligated to God, and it's not that we're paying him back. We could never pay him back. Um, but, but this is what this looks like, is he has formed this relationship in us. Okay, so um, with that um, being said, I want to move into where we're talking about a little bit tonight. Most people, probably probably all people who, who do not know Jesus, before they knew, know Jesus, uh, would say, I think they believe that their life um, looks something like this. And I know that's like a stick figure that explains nothing, right? Um, here's what I mean. I believe that most people before they know Jesus believe that, and I think a lot of people even after they know Jesus believe that their life was something like this, neutral, kind of unrestricted, unbound, and unconfined, able to do what they wanted to do. And, and most people who, who do not follow Jesus believe this, I think, a lot about themselves, that they, that they live in this kind of state of neutrality and that they are unconfined and unrestricted. What Romans 5-6 through 6 has basically taught us over the last couple of weeks is that actually our state looks something like this. Um, that, that before we knew Jesus, before God came into our lives to save us, that we were actually enslaved to sin. That's, that's a dude sitting in the dungeon of sin. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I just say the basement. Okay? Um, but this is, this, everyone's like, what is going on there? <laughs> so, um, Trying to figure out what that was. Like driveway. Yeah, like this is you getting run over in Sin's driveway. Um, so, <laughs> so this is sorry, basement. Um, basement. Uh, so so this is this is actually the story from Romans 
five, six is that you were enslaved to sin, that you were confined to it, and you may have thought you were free, but the truth is you weren't simply neutral. You weren't at a state of equilibrium. You were at the bottom. You were um, completely at the mercy of sin. This is actually what I think, what, what Scott was talking about in Romans 7. This is what he's getting at, that when a person, most people think, most people think that they're free, If a person actually pauses long enough to think about their life, I believe most of them, if they're honest with themselves, will have the same sort of inner inner monologue that Paul talks about at the end of Romans 7. That the kind of person I want to be, I I don't seem to have the ability to do it. Like, I know what I ought to do, and there are a lot of people who want to say, but I'm a good person, but my uncle was a good person. Listen, the truth of the matter is, you're not even good by your own standards. Mm -hmm. Like, if if all we did at the end of your life is grade you, if somebody just followed you around and just wrote down whatever you said about morality, whether or not you think it's good to gossip about people, whether or not you think it's okay to envy people, whether or not you think it's okay to lie, if all we did is listen to your own statements about morality and then grade you against those at the end of your life, you'd fail miserably. And so the truth of the matter is, it's because you're enslaved to something, even though you know those things are wrong, even though you don't want to live like that, you can't stop. It's just who you are, and so you're bound by that, and you're confined to that. When God came to you to save you, you were not free. You were not neutral. You were not in no man's land. You were in slave's dungeon. You were confined by sin. And, but, but hear me this. You, you weren't just an innocent victim either. You chose that team. You chose that side, maybe not knowing how much it was going to enslave you, but this is what you wanted. This is the side that you chose, and you may have, you may have been completely ignorant of how much it had bound you up, how enslaved to it you were. This is what Romans 5 says, you were God's enemies when he came after you. When Jesus came to lay down his own life for you, you were his enemies. But here's kind of the really cool thing. In the same way that we were never just neutral and on our own or free um, before we became, uh, before Jesus saved us, when God saves us, he doesn't simply just set us free. He doesn't just send us out to be kind of our own person now. and, and do we, He doesn't bring us back to neutral again, actually. We're going to see if this, if this drawing works, okay? Um, he actually... He, he actually puts us in a new home. He puts us in his home. He, he takes us and, and doesn't just say, okay, now, now you're free. I, I took the chains off you. I made you your own person. You can go run and be free. He actually says, no, I want you to come with me. I want you to come live in my house now. I, come, I want you to come benefit from me. And, and so what we find is that God did not take us or did not find us and save us at neutral. And then when he saves us, he doesn't just bring us back to neutral. He actually brings us to uh, a whole other level. One, another way to say this is, like when God came and saved me, I, I wasn't just broke with zero dollars to my name. I was a million dollars in debt. But then also when God saved me, he did way more than just pay off my debts and bring me back to zero. He paid off all my debts and then put a million dollars in my bank account. Like he, he did more than just restore me back to neutral. He made me something bigger than that. 
Um, he, he, he put, as Romans 5 says, he reconciled us back to himself. He gave us peace with our maker. He pours the love of God into our hearts through his spirit. He saves us from wrath. He gives us the ability now to be dead to sin and alive in Christ. All of these things that he pours into us more than just forgiving our sins. However you want to say it, we were worse off than we ever knew. And most of us, this is true of you, you are far better off than you realize now. You were worse off before Jesus than you even knew, and maybe than you even realize now. And you are also actually far better off than you realize now. But God has done more work in you, more work for you, enabling you to do more than you even understand or realize in a lot of ways. He has made us rich in Christ. Ephesians 1 says this, that He has given us every spiritual blessing in Jesus. Blessing us in the heavenly realms. Um, but here is kind of part of the issue, is that even though God removes us from this place, even though God takes us out of sin's domain, and out of the, the place where sin rules, He takes us out of that, and He puts us in His own home. The, the problem is that while we still live in this world, we're never like fully removed. It's, it's kind of like sin is always our neighbor. It's kind of like sin always lives next door. And, and it no longer has authority over you. But that doesn't mean that it can't still have influence. It doesn't mean that it can't still like whisper over the fence towards you, trying to convince you to come back over and kind of live this way. Or try to live this, uh, live in, in regards to the way it wants you to live. Listen, it has no power. It has no authority. You are no longer its slave. It's no longer your master. Um, but it does still have influence. And, and one of the areas that Paul talks about is kind of through our bodies. That our bodies were made good and right. And they were, um, they were a beautiful thing uh, made in the image of God. And, and yet it is kind of the first place where sin has kind of taken and set up home base there. Um, that sin actually um, racks our bodies. And that's what, when Paul says, man, the law is a good thing, but the flesh is weakened by sin. And because of that, it can turn even good things into bad things, that our bodies have been taken away. And so while we live in this world and in this body, sin is always right there next door, right there whispering at our doorstep, right there calling us back to that way of life. So the question then is, when Paul says in Romans 6, 4, God saved you in order that we too may walk in newness of life. He saved you. Remember we said it like this. Grace is not an excuse to keep sinning. It is the ability to stop. And so if that's what God saved us for, here's the question. How do we do that? If it's true that sin is always going to be there, if it's true that sin is always going to be calling after us, if it's true that sin is always whispering into our ear trying to entice us over to, to, to follow its commands again, to live under its authority again, how do we resist that and how do we live a right and good life? The answer, Paul says, in the chapter we just read, Romans 8, is this incredible gifts of all the amazing gifts God gives us. Remember, He does not just pay off your debts. He puts a million dollars in your bank account. And, and one of the biggest chunks of that million dollars is this, God Himself dwelling inside of you. 
with the Creator of heaven and earth through His Holy Spirit taking up residence in you. This is actually what makes you a new person. This is why you are dead to sin and alive in Christ because the Holy Spirit is bringing life into you. This is what um, marks you. Paul calls it in Ephesians this seal that marks us as gods. This is what says that I belong to Him now. It's the Holy Spirit living inside of me. This is what is um, taking over the sinful body. So if if my body is the place where sin has attacked and then kind of set up its home base in there, um, the body, Paul says, is the place where the Spirit is starting the rebellion, where, where the Spirit is actually starting to take back what is rightfully His. And it's starting to do the work inside of me to change me and, and, and make me right again. So the Holy Spirit is the answer um, to this problem. That The Holy Spirit is what does this thing in us. But... Um, we also see this in Romans 8, that, that Paul doesn't simply say you have the Holy Spirit, so no problem now, right? He didn't say the Holy Spirit's living in you, so you don't, I mean, it's all going to kind of come naturally and easy now. It, it doesn't really quite seem to, to be the way he describes that. He, he says, man, the Holy Spirit's in you, so now you have the ability, now you have life, now you can do these things. But, but he also describes that we have a role to play in that. Um, he says these things, that um, we are to walk according to the Spirit, that we are to be led by the Spirit, that we are to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, and that we are to put the misdeeds of the body to death by the Spirit. Um, all of these things have that, that same thing in it, the Spirit, that is, that it is doing this work with us, but we have some, um, some role to play in cooperating with the Holy Spirit's power in us. Um, I've always, been, I've always been fascinated by this. Galatians 5 says some really similar things, that we walk by the Spirit. In Galatians 5, it even uses this line, keep in step with the Spirit, which I really like, that idea. It's this continual idea of I'm working my way in, I'm, I'm keeping in step with Him as we walk together there. I love that idea, but I do have to admit that I have often gone, what in the world does that mean? Like that sounds awesome, keeping step by the Spirit. That sounds really great. Let's, let's just, everybody, when you leave today, make sure you walk by the Spirit. And we all go, sweet, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, so so what, what does that mean? How do, we, how do we walk according to the Spirit? How do we live um, with the power that the Spirit is enabling in us? Um, I'm not going to actually talk real long here. I briefly want to just give you three things. I'll be quick tonight. Um, this first, first is this, that we believe the truth. This is at least half the battle. Um, to believe the truth that God's Holy Spirit is in us. To believe the truth that all the things, um, all the things that you think you can't stop doing, like we talked about last week, that, that you don't have the ability to forgive. That you don't have the ability to stop looking at pornography. That you don't have the ability to stop giving yourselves into unhealthy relationships to try and find some sort of self-esteem, uh, that you don't have the ability to stop being selfish, those things are not true of you anymore. And, and if you do not believe that, if you cannot come to grips with that truth, that none of those statements about you are true anymore, that Romans 7, what I want to do, I cannot do, that's not you. Romans 8 is you. Romans 6 is you dead to sin and alive in Christ. You have the ability to do this. 
Um, and this is not simply the power of positive thinking. Just think happy thoughts. Just believe it and it can be true for you. I'm not telling you to believe something so it can be true. I'm telling you to believe something because it already is true. It's, it's like we talked about last week, the, the little boy guiding that giant bull by a rope in its nose. Why? Because the bull, after years and years of being trained to think otherwise, it has no idea that it could at any moment pull itself loose from that boy and run free. That's, that's us. And, and if you don't know this truth, in, if you don't know this truth about yourself, then, then you're, you're dead kind of from the start. Paul says here in, in Romans that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. So what is sin going to do compared to that? What does sin have on the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead that ought to have more control or power in our lives than that? First thing we need to do is believe that truth. And, and I believe preach that truth to ourselves regularly. Um, put that truth in us through the word of God. Soak our minds in that. And that actually brings me to the second thing. So the second one is renew your mind. This is, this is where Paul sin This is almost as practical as Paul gets when he starts talking about walking according to the Spirit. This idea comes up. Uh, multiple times in his writings. One is later on in the book of Romans in a really, really famous verse, Romans 12, 1 through 2, that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices and that we ought not to be conformed anymore to the patterns of this world, but that we ought to be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. That we are transformed by the renewing of your mind. He'll say in Colossians 3 that we as new people are renewed in knowledge in the image of our Creator. And in Ephesians 4 he'll say that we are renewed in the spirit of our minds. This idea comes up several times in Paul that, that we ought to be renewed. Um, so, here's a little bit of how this works. In I grew up going to youth group in the 90s. Um, which was an awesome time to be involved in a youth group. We had way more cool Christian bands than you guys have. Um, and, and so it was, it, was a, it was a crazy, weird time to be growing up. I, honestly, I have a lot of great memories and stuff, but sometimes I look back and just be like, we were so weird. Um, and uh, I played in, this is not even at all what I was planning on talking to you about, but I played in a sweet Christian rock scene back there in high school. So... Um, our band name was Salt, speaking a living truth, right? So that's kind, that's kind of like 90s Christian music scene in a nutshell right there. That describes it pretty well. So, so, okay, so back in the 90s, though, this kind of touches with the Christian music thing. Like, it became really big when, when I was in, like, high school and junior high. Like, these, the, these ideas of um, you don't listen to secular music and you don't go to rated R movies. Those two things became really big, and that's why we had to have a lot of Christian bands, because none of us were allowed to listen to any secular bands. So we always had to have Christian bands that were trying to sound like the secular bands, so you could still get to listen to music that was kind of cool. Um, so, so, but this, was, this really was a big deal, and I remember like having that deep conviction that I need to put those things aside, and I really remember having um, lower opinions of those who were listening to corn and stuff like that. Now... I still have low opinions of those people, but not for not not so much the secular stuff as much as just taste in music, right? Um, 
But but I remember like one of and, and and the rated R movie was a really big kind of line for a lot of us, at least in my youth group, that that like good Christians avoided those things. Um, so at the time, I thought that that was really cool. Then later, I moved on and looked back to think that that was really really dumb. And now I look back and I realize that it was actually a little bit of both. And and the reason why is because if. If the reason you don't listen to secular music and you avoid rated R movies is for the sake of saying that you avoid those things, that's dumb. Because the point is not just to choose to find as many things as we can avoid to look different. The point is not to just try and, um, yeah, just not look bad all the time and try and do those, draw these extra boundary markers that mark us as more spiritual or more able, right? That's, That's foolishness. But here's where there was some truth to it. The truth is that I cannot continually fill my mind with the things of the world and expect to become more like Jesus. I just can't do that. And, and there's this weird thing there's where, where somehow um, I think we have pushed back against that idea that was kind of prevalent in the 90s and honestly long before that, right? In the mm-hmm. 70s and 80s. Christians were decrying the evils of rock and roll and all of that stuff, right? And we look back on that and we say that's dumb. And so we push so far to say, no, actually, we can be cool and we can listen to anything we want and we can watch anything we want because freedom in Christ, right? And I'm not going to mark myself like some legalistic Pharisee. I'm going to be able to do those things and not be able to judge. We can be real, right? Let's be real. And, and the truth is we somehow expect that I can fill myself up with all the things that the world fills itself fills itself up with and then somehow expect myself to look different than them. It just doesn't work that way. And, and I'm not actually here mostly arguing you to get rid of a lot of that stuff. Some of you need to do that. A lot of you probably need to do that. But that in and of itself, again, is no good unless you are then filling yourself up with the things of the Spirit. Yeah. Unless you are setting your minds, this is what he says in here, that those who walk according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That in order for me to be able to live in accordance with the Spirit, I need to be fixing my heart and my mind. I need to be fixing my gaze on Him and His truths and and the things that He wants and the things that He desires of me. What I think about shapes what I value. And it shapes what I care about and it shapes my habits, the way I begin to act day in and day out, and that eventually will shape my life. And so... uh, I. I'm not here to set any sort of standard for you of you can watch this many rated R movies in a year, um, that you can only watch TV this many uh, minutes or hours a day. Or I'm not here to do any of those things, but I am here to tell probably every one of us in here that you need to do less in order to put your mind more on Christ. Don't expect to fill your mind with the things of the world and then look different from it. It just doesn't work that way. We renew our minds if we want to be like Him. Um, I might even put on there even neutral things, even things that aren't necessarily bad. Again, uh, I believe that there are a lot of like shows, movies, books, things that are, that are not Christian that we can thank God for, really, that display the beauty of God. Um, but if I... If I um, if I gorge myself on junk food, or even if I gorge myself on okay-for-me food, then it does not leave much of an appetite for better things. 
um, that will feed me more. And so I just need to free up space in my heart and mind for the things of God in my time and in my schedule. Um, so number one, believe the truth. Number two, renew your mind. Number three is fight. Verse 13, Paul does not mince words. If you want to live, then you put to death the misdeeds of the body. Um, the New Testament often talks about sin and the, de- and the um, acts of the flesh or the fruit of the flesh in this way. Um, with violent imagery. That you are to put it to death. That you are to kill it. And I know that the problem in my own life, and I really do believe in a lot of Christians' life, is that we would much rather tame sin rather than kill it. Um, that, that what I want is a sin that is manageable. What I want is to keep my sin um, from being that much bigger than a lot of people's around me. What I want is to keep my sin from being crazy or my sin from being like super perverted that would really make me feel gross. I want to make sure that I can kind of keep my sin managed and tamed and down in this one little corner. And the Bible says that's not how it works. Killing it is the only thing that you're supposed to do. It's the only thing that, that works with that. You don't, you don't tame cobras in your house. Like, as much as you want to convince yourself that that thing may be tame, at some point, it's going to turn on you and things are going to go bad. Right? And this is, this is the way sin works, that you don't tame it, you kill it. And, and I, I know this to be true in my life, that too often I am, um, I am satisfied with just keeping my, my sin smaller, rather than putting an end to it. Um, this will take on our behalf time spent on our knees in prayer, asking God, um, lead us not into temptation, asking Him to give us new desires. This will take you, um, some of you tonight, if this, if this matters to you, if walking according to the Spirit matters to you, if killing your sin matters to you, this will take some of you tonight finding someone in this room and confessing sin that you've been keeping hidden from everyone for a long time because sin always thrives in the dark always thrives in secrecy. And, if, and if, you, if, you, if you want to be a person who is eventually like dominated by your sin, best thing to do, tell no one. Um, because it always thrives in secrecy. So it will mean for, for some of you confessing uh, sin to people. Actually, it means for all of us regularly confessing sin. But it means for, for some of you tonight confessing sin, it, it means finding someone who will hold you accountable um, even that phrase kind of gets weirdly Christian cliche sometimes, but someone who will call you to higher things than the things of the world, someone who will call you to love Jesus more than yourself and Jesus more than your sin and Jesus more than the stuff of this earth. It's going to mean having brothers and sisters who will do that with you. It's going to mean for some of you some really drastic steps because you're called not to tame but to fight. You're called to kill it. And so it might mean for some of you getting rid of the TV in your house. It might mean for some of you getting a dumb phone instead of a smartphone because that's what's been dragging you down for years and you know it and you just feel really silly giving that thing up because I mean everyone's got one and people might ask me questions why I have you know all those kinds of things but you know that it's killing you and Jesus says to us um, that you cut off your hand if it causes you to sin that you gouge out your eye if it causes you to sin because better for you to lose one hand than for your whole body to be thrown into hell Better for you to lose your smartphone, your computer, your TV. Better for you to lose whatever it is, your favorite show, than for you to find your whole self consumed in the sin that that keeps dragging you back into. We don't tame our sin, we kill it, and that might look drastic. There is going to be a battle. 
that we're going to have to fight. But the good news of Romans 8 is that we do not fight it on our own. Uh, that all of these things that have been spoken to us, it says we do those things by the Spirit, that we put to death these things by the Spirit, that we walk by the Spirit, that we live by the Spirit. He enables us, He empowers us to do those things. As I said before, I'll say it again, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. Um, the very power that was at work to, to resurrect Christ's body um, and bring it back to life and, and set in motion a new phase of history is at work in you at this time. If, if you belong to Jesus, if you're His, then you have that in you. You have that ability to follow those things. I love what 2 Peter 1.3 says. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. His divine power has given you everything you need for godly life. So brothers and sisters, you have been um, dead, to, dead to sin. You have been raised to walk in newness of life. You have been given the Holy Spirit. Walk in that. Live in that. Live in the truths of the gospel. Let your mind be renewed by those things. I want to pray. I want to share two things with you real quick. All right? Dear God, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, it becomes really, uh, really uh, clear, really quick, really simple, really quick that that words alone are not going to be enough, and uh, and that trying really hard is not going to be enough even though that'll be necessary, and that um, strong commitments, even though that's necessary, is not going to be enough, um, that we are we're dependent on you for this, and, and even, for, even for some people in here to hear this, to hear their great need for you, Lord, to hear their great need for um, the Holy Spirit to work in their lives, um, that's, that's something that I think you're going to have to open their eyes and hearts to, and so, Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts, not to discourage us uh, over sin, but to encourage us that that doesn't have to be our life anymore and, and call us to holiness, um, Lord. And I pray that you would empower us by your Spirit to walk in step with you, um, to live the kind of life that you deserve from us. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, I, I mentioned to you last week that we uh, the reason we wanted to talk through this these few chapters in Romans here as we started the semester off is because it is so, so big for us and we believe so important for you that you learn to live a gospel-centered life, that you, um, that you put your actions, that you root your whole life and your actions and your choices in the gospel and let it flow out of that. And so um, that's really big and, and, and this is what separates us from other people in the world who want to try to be good people is that in two different ways. First is our starting point. When other people want to be good people, they do that from within themselves. They try and muster up some kind of ability to try and be a right and good person. We do that from the gospel first. We do that from this is what Jesus has already done for you. Not try and figure it all out. No, Jesus has already done this for you. And he's saved you from all your sin. And he's enabled you to overcome it. And so live from that beauty. That's, that's the difference in us is where we start, but also where we finish. 
See, everyone else, when they try to live for what is good and, and do what is right, it's for themselves so that they can become a better version of them. Mm-hmm. It's for self-actualization. It is for um, other people to take note of what a good guy I am. But that's not our end goal. Our end goal is also the gospel. Our end goal is the kingdom, actually. Um, that the kingdom of God would come to this earth. And, and so we, we, want, um, we want to serve him in his kingdom. One of the things that this has been kind of a conviction in our hearts over the last couple of years is that as a ministry, the table has not done a great job um, at inviting other people into this kingdom, at, it, at working to advance God's kingdom um, by calling others to it. And, and we, want to, we want to grow in that. We want to change in that because we believe that God deserves that. that when the Spirit, this is also kind of important to know, God's Spirit at work in you is not just there to help you avoid bad things, right? It's also there to enable you to do good things, to enable you to do the things you thought you were too scared to do, or enable you to do the things that you didn't think you had it in you to do, or whatever that is, right? And so um, we want to be able to we want to be able to live that out. We want to invite people into the kingdom. We also know that, like, I, I really do. There are some ministries that do a great job of like big events-oriented things on campus, and and setting up a big booth, or or you know having some big thing that they invite a lot of people to. And and man, I, I really do. I, I praise God for those people and and for those ministries and the way they work. Um, I don't. We, we don't feel like that is super in line with our DNA and the way kind of we work about uh, those things. But but we don't believe that gives us an excuse to not be reaching out. So one of the things that we've actually kind of, our leaders have been thinking about and praying through is we want to be more of a presence on campus in which we are bringing the community that we get to experience here at the table onto campus and then being able to invite people into that. So here's kind of a simple thing that's been put on our minds that we want to start practicing. Every Wednesday at lunch from 11.30 to 1.30, the table is going to be having lunch together, anyone who can make it there. we got this two-hour gap, so if you got a class during one hour, you can make it to the next or whatever. So from 11.30 to 1.30, every Wednesday, the table is going to be having lunch at the Union. As it gets warmer, hopefully like out on the porch or something. And our goal is just to be a faithful presence there on campus, uh, to be a group that is there, like displaying what community, what church looks like, and then inviting people into it. And so we want you to know that we're going to be there so that you can be there, but we also want you to know that you can be there so that, like, um, friends that you're getting out of class with, you can say, hey, come grab lunch with me. And, and we know that there are probably friends that you know of that you think about that you go, like, I, if I invited them to an hour and a half Bible study on Thursday night, they would, they would turn and run away from me and never talk to me again, right? But, but they'd probably go to lunch with you. And they'd probably come hang out with us and, and, and allow us to get to know them so that we can start praying for those people by name and praying for your opportunities to talk to them um, and, and love them in the name of Jesus. And so that's kind of our heart, and, and I hope that you will pray um, for that, that, that God would use that um, to, to give us opportunities to share the gospel with people and love people, um, and also that you'll come. And, and hang out with us, and also that as you're hanging out, if you see friends walking by, that, that you can invite them to come hang out with us as well. The second thing is this. Um, we have been also praying about for a while, uh, reaching out to international students at the university, and, and I think I mentioned to you at one point, kind of a number in our head, and this is random, I don't know if it's got to be this, but we've been praying for 10 of our students who would have a heart to reach out and, and love international students in the name of Jesus and care for them. 
and 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 kind of show the love of Jesus to them. And so I don't know if that's you, if, if you feel any of that inside of you, but we actually have a couple different opportunities that seem to be springing up. One is there's actually a gentleman at Sunnybrook who's, who is a, I think he was a missionary for a little while, and then he's a professor um, at a Christian uh, university for a little while. He's here in Stillwater, and he's got a strong heart for reaching out to the international community. So he's having actually a meeting at Sunnybrook after the second service, like after church on Sunday at Sunnybrook in the little library area. Um, and, and it's just basically, if you've got this heart, if you're interested, then we would love to have you here so we can talk a little about what that might look like. And so I would love it, we would love it, if some of our people were there, if some of, the, some of you from the table um, made that kind of a little bit of your ministry. If for whatever reason you can't make it, I actually have his number and email. He said, if you can't make it to that on Sunday, um, uh, then we've got an email for you to reach out to him or, or a number for you to contact him and, and maybe get in touch with him. So if, if you would like that email or phone number, come talk to me. Or even if you think, I think I'm going to go to that. I, I, I would just love to know so that we can we can be talking with you about that and praying for you about that. So come find me or Scott or Rachel or Kelsey and, and tell us about that. All right, that's it. Um, I think that's all our announcements. We'll have food out here. Hang out with us. If you're new, we'd really love to meet you. All right.